All right, I think we have the K-1 and 2. They're going to be heading out kindergarten, first and second grade. They're going to be uh, heading out with, I don't know everything, so... Ms. Laura, are you, heading, are you taking our group? All right, so K-1 and 2, if you will go this way, if you are a third, fourth, or fifth grader, if you'll just head right down here with Miss Sarah, uh, and she's right here, she'll go ahead and grab your packet. So K-1 and 2, you're going to head that way with Miss Laura, third, fourth, and fifth, come and get your packets. Everybody else, start looking for Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. Uh, we continue our journey through Luke's gospel this morning. While all of these things are happening... Uh, let me throw out to you, just to back up Jen here, uh, right after the service, you'll notice that we've got the tables in here. Uh, when we say amen, that is not a mass exodus opportunity, that is an opportunity for them to bring the food in, and we are going to have our VBS kickoff. Uh, VBS is the first full week of June, June 6th through the 9th this year, uh, and so we are, we are getting ready by planting and planting those seeds now, so if you'll go ahead and put that on your calendar, uh, that is one of the greatest opportunities we have as a church to reach the children and their parents in our community, to serve our community to love on our community. It's a fun week. Uh, it's, it's a great week, lots of activities, lots of things going on during the course of that week, but it takes a lot of planning, it takes a lot of preparation, it takes a lot of people coming together to, to pull it to, together. We don't like to pull it off. Uh, we're not looking to pull it off. We're looking to pull it together. Uh, and so there are a lot of compartments to that. So I uh, encourage you to stay and be a part of what's going on. I also just want to continue to encourage us uh, to be faithful in our giving, our tithes, and our offerings. Um, I get asked on a pretty regular basis, because um, I use those words every week, um, but I forget that not everybody grew up in church, not everybody has gone to church all their lives. What, why do I keep saying tithes and offerings? This is a biblical practice that we do uh, to, to make sure that the ministries and the things that God tells us to do, we can do from a resource perspective. Tithe, from a biblical standpoint, is 10%. It is the first 10% of your income. Uh, so when, when Julie and I get paid, uh, we take the first 10 percent. We write that check because I'm old and I do it that way. Uh, I don't go online anymore, but I still write checks because I'm that guy. Uh, and, we, and we put it in the box, uh, and that's the first, the, the first gift. Offering is a term that's used for anything that's above the tithe. Uh, the tithe is meant to be a starting point, and here's the fun part about tithes and offerings. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. God is going to overwhelm you time and time again with how he provides and what he pu what he puts in front of you. And so I just I love the opportunity to give especially when I know what he's called us to do as a church and how to serve and how to reach and how to love our community. Couple things, other things that are, are coming up. Uh, I don't think they're all in your handout because I didn't give them all to, to Karen and the team in there. Uh, we are going to have a couple of work days uh, the first weekend of March. That Saturday and that Sunday. I think that's March fifth and sixth. We're going to have a work day that Saturday morning. We're going to have a work day that Sunday afternoon. Uh, and so we're there's several projects that need to happen around our campus. Uh, again, this is we are the church. This campus is the building that God has 
given us uh, to steward the opportunities that we have. I've been often referring to it as our headquarters. Uh, this is the, the catalyst from which we reach and serve and love Brevard County. And so, but we do need to take care of the campus that he has provided. And we've just got some projects that we could use your help on. So that's March 5th and 6th. Also coming up, uh, but a little bit closer, uh, is going to be Saturday evening, February the 26th. That is our third, I think it's our third annual, third annual trivia night. Uh, great night, lots of fun. Uh, we fill the room with tables. Each table has about eight, maybe nine or 10 people around it. Uh, we do eight rounds of eight questions in lots of different categories. The number one question I always get, is it all Bible trivia? No, it's not all Bible trivia. I sneak some of them in there, um, but uh, it is not all Bible trivia. It is politics, it is sports, it is movies, it is music, it's all, but it's just a great time. The, the strategy behind it is to to reach out to our community. And so what we like to encourage people to do is two of, two of the uh, two couples or four people at a table uh, be part, regular attenders or actively involved in our church. And then the other four people at the table are folks from the community, folks that you've been wanting to invite and maybe Sunday morning freaks them out a little bit, but they'd come to something fun like a trivia night. And so it's a lot of fun. Uh, we are doing something a little bit different this year that I'm not going to share with you quite yet, but I'm very excited about it but I'm only going to be excited about it if there are people in the room. So you want to register your team. What if I don't? What if I don't, can't put a team together? Just come, we'll put you on one, and it'll be great. There is a prize for the people that answer the most question, and there is a prize for the losers. And so just letting you know, and like when I say losers, I don't mean like the people that didn't win. I mean like the losers. So just saying, because we need to affirm everybody. Um, and so, um, but it is a lot of fun. So you can register by calling the church office. You can register by calling the preschool. Uh, and so we want you to bring your team, put, put them together and come and have a wonderful evening. You can see the, the details in your handout right there. And then finally, we have been, we started working about three weeks ago. We'll have another rehearsal today, but we have been, wor we are working on the story, the musical. And that is going to be on Sunday morning, March the 27th. And I'm telling you right now, you want to go ahead now and be inviting somebody to come with you. The first step may be to get them here to trivia night. Might be the, the, the introductory opportunity that you have to get their foot in the door. And then on this Sunday morning, March the 27th, it is going to be a journey through uh, all of Scripture. It is going to be the story of how, of how God has orchestrated our relationship with Him, His relationship with us, and how we can have that relationship in Jesus Christ. If you have somebody on your heart and on your mind that you want to share the gospel with, but you just haven't had that opportunity or you're nervous, uh, this is going to be a great opportunity. I can promise you if they come that Sunday morning, they're going to hear and see and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, just ask any of these folks that are in the choir that have been coming to the rehearsals. It's going to be a great morning, but we can't wait until the Saturday before to invite somebody. You got to start uh, pestering them now. I mean, inviting them now and so they can be a part. Luke chapter 9. Uh, last week we had the opportunity to walk through Luke chapter 7 and, and we saw three, somewhat four examples of regular people uh, demonstrating some level of faith in Christ and who He is and in what He can do. And I, I shared this with our small group this morning. Uh, I hope that you uh, were in a small group this morning. I hope that you found one. If you weren't able to get here that early this morning, I hope that you will put it on your radar to jump in next week or small groups 
groups have launched. We start at 9.15. Uh, we have several groups that meet in Building 4, some groups that meet here. There's going to be a small group for you. Let me encourage you. I don't think I can encourage you enough to get plugged in to a small group. As we continue to grow, we need these churches within the church to, to remain healthy as we continue to, to love, serve, and reach our community. So this week I'm in Luke chapter 9. Last week I was in Luke chapter 7. Do I not like chapter 8? No, I just felt like I, God was leading me here. And so what will happen is our small groups can spend some time next week if they would like. Uh, some of them will do this. Uh, they, will, they can take a look at uh, and dive deeper into chapter 8 if they so want. That's the purpose of small groups, to be able to go deeper. That's one of the purposes of small groups, is to be able to go deeper into God's Word because I can't cover, no pastor can cover in 30, 40 minutes uh, what all that God's Word has to say. And so that's why we go into these small groups. But last week we were in chapter 7, and we looked at a centurion, a Roman military commander whose servant was ill, yet uh, he believed that Jesus could heal him. We looked at a widow who was mourning the loss of her son, and, and that moved Jesus to compassion and ultimately to bring her boy back to life. We, we briefly touched on John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, uh, whose background story we learn in Luke chapter 1. He's also Jesus' predecessor. He is the one who would prepare the way for Jesus' message, for Jesus' ministry. He's also the one who would baptize Jesus. And in Luke chapter 7, we see John the Baptist struggling, doubting even, but we see Jesus meet John where he is, even in his doubt, and we see Jesus encourage John and affirm John. Uh, then the chapter closes with a woman in the town who was a sinner, uh, and in an unconventional way, she ends up washing Jesus' feet with perfume and her tears, and then in this unconventional way, she demonstrates this act of repentance, and Jesus forgives her of her sins and tells her that it is her faith that has saved her. And in this chapter, we saw, we see faith and compassion. We see repentance and forgiveness. We see healing and salvation. And as you continue through chapter 8 and into chapter 9, you are going to see more of the same. Christ demonstrating himself. Christ demonstrating his power, his authority, his love, his compassion. His compassion. And he's demonstrating these things so that uh, he's demonstrating these things for the sole purpose of being able to communicate the his message. In some respects, it's kind of like uh, Julie and I used to serve in an organization with an organization uh, that partnered with our church, an organization called Young Life. And Young Life's motto, for lack of a better way of describing it, was earning the right to be heard. What's happening here in these passages, Jesus is, is performing these miracles, as Jesus is healing these folks with the people, he's sort of earning the right to be heard so that he can broadcast his message. Jesus has every right in the world to be heard. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. But we are human. We are flawed. And sometimes we need something to grasp, grab our attention. And so what happens is Jesus does these healings. He does these miracles. And then he teaches on top of that so that he can communicate his message to the folks. And so that he, they can begin to establish or reestablish their relationship with God. The, the relationship that they were created for in the first place. As we enter chapter 9, a shift begins to take place. 
we have this shift that begins to take place in what is happening. Uh, it is a shift physically. It is a shift geographically. Uh, it is also a shift emotionally. It is a shift spiritually. As we enter chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are beginning to turn, literally turn toward Jerusalem. In this, Jesus is also turning his teaching and his ministry toward the cross. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 of chapter 9. Uh, excuse me, where am I? Am I chapter 9? Yes. Verse 18 says, While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and Peter is the one that answers, which will be incredibly significant later on. Luke records Peter's answer as God's Messiah. My favorite is, is Matthew's uh, translation, and I love the way the New King James says it. He says, you, uh, Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Why, why does this matter? Why is this at all important? Because the closer and closer that we get to Jerusalem, the closer we get to Calvary, the closer we get to the cross, this will be Peter's, Peter's expression, Peter's testimony, Peter's acknowledgement, Peter's recognition, Peter's declaration is going to be the foundational truth upon which our faith will depend. It's going to be the foundational truth upon which Christ's ultimate expression of compassion is going to be displayed. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is God's Son. He is God's plan for the redemption of all mankind. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that restores, that redeems us of our sin and restores our relationship with the Father. So let's keep reading. But keep that shift, keep this turn, this physical and geographical turn, this emotional and spiritual turn, keep that shift at the forefront of your heart and mind. We are turning towards Jerusalem. We are turning toward Calvary. We are turning toward the cross. As we hear him speak, as we hear him teach, as we watch him heal and perform miracles, that is now the view. That is now the perspective. And, and I just told Karen at the very beginning of the sermon, this is not going to be that big of a deal to you, but it's just ginormous to me right now. Scott, we didn't, I didn't see the order of worship beforehand. We didn't talk about it, uh, not because we don't like each other, but we just didn't have that opportunity this week. But I didn't, know, I didn't know any of the songs this morning. And this won't be that big of a deal to you, but I sat there on the front row and I told Karen, I said, I'm just not real confident in the message today. I just haven't had as much of the planning and preparation time as I normally like to. Why? Because life just kind of happens sometimes. Ministry uh, is not on a really scheduled system here, you know. Uh, we, we go where the need is, and that takes some of our time. Ministry is all about one big interruption and, and being where people need us to be and doing what God tells us to do. But sometimes I, that preparation, I just didn't have it, so I'm sitting here today, and I just didn't have that confidence. And this is what I wrote. I said, so let's keep reading, but keep that shift at the forefront of your heart and mind. We're turning toward Jerusalem. We're turning toward Calvary. We're turning toward the cross. As we hear him speak, as we hear him teach, as we watch him heal and perform miracles, this is now our view and this is now our perspective. I think of the song, Oh, Praise the Name. 
And the chorus says, Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord our God. Because the, what came to mind was the first verse. It says, I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His feet. My Savior on the cursed tree. This is not that big of a deal to you, but for the guy that was standing on the front row, not real confident in what he had to bring to the table today, I was reminded during that song that it has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with him and his word and what he wants to say to us this morning. So this morning, I would beg you and I would urge you to forgive me of my faults and my failings, but turn our minds to Calvary to shift with Jesus and his disciples as they physically and geographically begin to turn toward Jerusalem, as they begin to turn towards Calvary, as they begin to turn toward the cross and turn not just geographically and physically, but turn emotionally and turn spiritually to take yourself and put yourself in Luke chapter 9 with the disciples, with Jesus, with what is happening as we begin this journey toward the cross. Because while it has always been at the forefront of Christ's mind and heart, he is now more open openly and transparently communicating it with those who are following him, most specifically this group of 12, 11 of which are going to take this message and they're going to change the world with it. And he is saying nothing less to you and I. Take this message, take the cross, and change the world with it. With that in mind and looking at verse 23, 28, if you are physically able to join us, I'd ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter, starting with verse 28. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters for you, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you. You are my rock and you are my redeemer. May I decrease so that you might increase. And may we conclude our time today more like you than when we started. Because we have been in your presence. We have heard your voice. And we have been changed by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Verse 28 says about eight days after this conversation. What conversation? Go back to verse 22. Verse 21 says he was strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. But he said it's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. That he would suffer 
be rejected, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Again, he's looking to, the, to Calvary. He's looking to the cross. He's becoming much more open, much more transparent with the disciples in particular about what is getting ready to happen, about the entire reason that he came in the first place. And while we know this, because we have the advantage of hindsight, we can look in Scripture and see what he wrote, we have to remember that the disciples are taking all of this in. They are there in the actual moments that this is all unfolding. So they're seeing this happen, they're seeing the healings, they're seeing the miracles, but now Jesus is starting to talk about being killed, being, uh, about dying, and about being resurrected, and it's got to be confusing. Verse 23, then he said to them all, who's all? That's the 12, the disciples. If you ever need that list, look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Again, he's being very open. He's being very transparent and he's beginning to walk them verbally and emotionally to the cross. He's beginning to let them know what's about to happen. So not only is he telling them about his death, but he's also beginning to prepare them for their lives after his death and resurrection. Not only is he preparing them for their, them for their lives and death after his resurrection, but if you look at John chapter 17, just John that down real quick in your notes. Look at John chapter 17. You'll see this is Jesus's high priestly prayer, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, and he prays for his disciples, and he prays for what's going to happen to them after after he dies and is resurrected, but then he spends the last part of his high priestly prayer praying for you and I, so we can understand, we can gather from that, that not only is he teaching and investing in the disciples here, but he is also investing in us. We are on his heart, we are on his mind. And while he is speaking directly to the disciples, and we have to understand that in the context that is in, because of John chapter 17, we can also understand and believe and have confidence in the fact that while Jesus is on this journey, you and I are still on the forefront of his heart and his mind. He's also preparing us. Keep reading. Verse 28. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James. Remember, Jesus had followers. Jesus had disciples. Jesus had an inner circle. Followers, disciples, inner circle. He took along Peter, John, and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. The Greek word here is metamorpho. It is the word from which we get metamorphosis. Some translations will use the word transfigure. Basically what is happening, and and the authors can't quite describe it or put it into terms that we can understand, but we know that there is a change, there is a metamorphosis, not just in Jesus' countenance, but the implication here is that there is an actual change in Jesus' physical state. Uh, We can't fully describe it, we can't fully put our minds around it or understand what is happening, but they can, the disciples can still tell, these three can still tell it's Jesus, but, but something is changing in his appearance in such an incredible way. And it says his clothes became dazzling white. Why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Because in this time and in this context, they walked around and the streets weren't paved. Clothing got 
really dirty really fast. They walked around everywhere. The streets were not paved. People would uh, even recline while they were eating. Uh, They would be on the ground most of the time. Uh, They would oftentimes sleep on the ground and they would take their outer coverings and they would fold it up and use their outer clothing as as a pillow. And, 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 And garments got dirty really, really fast. But in that moment, And I love the way Mark says it. In that moment, his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. How many of you have children? How many of you have children that play sports? How many of you have ever tried to get that out of softball pants or football pants and it would not come out? Liars. (laughs) And what he's saying is that no, what, what, what Mark and what Luke are trying to communicate here is that there is something supernatural happening here. But let me put it in language that you could possibly understand. But I'm telling you, something supernatural is happening here. Why is this important? Because we need to understand, as did the three disciples that are with him, that we are in the midst. In this passage, we are in the midst of something supernatural. We are not, uh, this is not a normal earthly experience. But this moment is holy. It is set apart unto God and for his purposes. Keep reading. Verse 30. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. If you, can't, if you don't remember the last couple of weeks, I've said Elijah is one of those Old Testament prophets that if you're, if you're into Bible study, and I hope that you are, if you want to understand God's Word better, and I hope that you do, if you want to understand the New Testament, you often do that by understanding the Old Testament. And Elijah is one of those people that you'll understand better, and you'll understand the New Testament better if you understand Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glory, verse 31, and they were speaking with him about his departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, why Moses and Elijah? I've got a couple of thoughts, but let's be real clear. They're my thoughts. They're they're other scholars' thoughts. We don't have a definitive reason that it's Moses Moses and Elijah. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why it's these two. Many think it has to do with the way those two individuals departed this earth. Those two individuals had a very unique departure from this side of life. Moses died, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. uh, Moses died and, and God buried him. God is the only one who knows where Moses was buried. Elijah never died. Elijah, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, I think, uh, write it down, check me out later. If I'm wrong, tell somebody else. Um, And It's 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind, and he was taken up to heaven. Other than that, one of my favorite characters, Enoch. Enoch never died, it just says, and he was no more. Um, And so uh, those, but two, because they think maybe it's because of their unique departure from this side of life. I tend to agree with the folks that think it had to do with what Moses and Elijah represented. Moses is going to be the representative 
representation of the law. Exodus chapter 20, Moses is the one uh, who uh, represented really the beginning of Israel as a nation. Abraham is the father of Israel, but Moses is really that moment in time where Israel becomes a nation and then they go through the exodus out of Egypt and then they receive the law in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Elijah then represents the prophets, uh, the messengers of God as well as the messages of God, both God's message as we are doing on Wednesday nights now as we continue our journey through Route 66 through an overview of every book of the Bible. We are, we are now really toward the end and, and looking at the prophets and every prophet has two messages. They have this, this message of God's impending wrath and they have this message of God's impending redemption. God's wrath and God's redemption and that is what, that is what Elijah represents. So you have Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, and, and then you have the law and the prophets. And you have Jesus and the law and the prophets. What was Jesus? Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Man, that's good stuff. Wish we could camp out there. That said, what's important, that's just conjecture. What's important is to understand that these two Old Testament believers are now standing with Christ in glory. They are standing with Christ in glory. The Greek word that's used is doxa. And doxa is a Greek word for the Hebrew word kabod. Those two words both mean the same thing. They are an expression of light. They are identifying with light. And what they're specifically focusing on is the radiant splendor of God's presence, which is God's presence indicates God's glory. And God's glory emanates because of God's character. There is this radiant splendor emanating from this moment in time. These two individuals who have been with the Father, the one who has been with the Father for all eternity, and in this the disciples are getting ready to see this doxa, this kabod, this radiant splendor, this incredible light, because it is, it is representing the incredible presence of God in their midst. His glory and His character, and that is what is happening here. God is about to speak. God is about to say something incredible. And what he is doing is he is making his presence known first. These Old Testament believers, Moses had died about 1,500 years before this moment. Elijah had gone up in the whirlwind about 900 years before this. And here they are. They've been in God's presence and they're standing on earth again. But they're standing on earth without any of the physical earthly restrictions. Their bodies, along with Jesus, is in this moment, in this supernatural moment. Their bodies are in a supernatural state because they have been and they are in God's presence. And this is this vivid picture. And here's where it gets good. This is this vivid picture of the kingdom of God for an instant coming to earth. For an instance, coming to earth for a brief moment, the kingdom of God is appearing on earth in all of his glory. This is a picture of what eternity is going to look like when there is no longer a separation between the living and the dead. There is no longer a division between the earthly and the spiritual. This is, going to, this is a picture of what it's going to look like when we are all eternally forgiven, when we are all eternally healed, when we are all eternally whole. That's why we can't describe it. It's why we can't fully understand it. Something is happening on this mountaintop that is incredibly supernatural and we can't put words to it because it's representing the glory of our God. Because you see, when we get to the other side of life, 
when we are healed and we, and we are whole, we are still going to have these bodies. They are going to be transformed. They are going to be different. We are still going to recognize one another. But we are going to have these body, bodies that are impervious. They are going to be unaffected. They are going to be untouched. They are going to be undamaged. They are going to be untarnished. Sin will have no hold on them. Pain will have no hold on them. There will be no suffering. There will be no disease. There will be no death. We will be whole in the truest sense of the word. We can't explain it, at least I can't, exactly what's going on here. But for this moment, with Moses and Elijah standing here with a view toward the cross, with a view towards the crucifixion, we are reminded that death does not have the final say. Let me say that again. Death does not have the final say. Yes, it will touch us as long as we are on this side of life. But it does not speak last, and it for sure does not speak loudest. Here are these two that have gone on, and they've been in the presence of the Lord, and they've come back. Keep reading. They appeared in glory and were speaking of His departure. The word used is exodus. It's the, implication, uh, the implication of the word that's used does mean a departure, but it, what it means is a departure having completed the assigned task. It's a departure having fulfilled the assignment. And Jesus will depart this world, but not without having accomplished all that He set out to do. Verse 32, Peter and those with Him were in a deep sleep. That won't be the last time that happens. And when they become fully awake, they saw His glory. I mean, they're waking up just in time to see these guys leaving. And the two men who were standing with Him. Verse 33, as the two men were departing from Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Uh, we should build up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke pokes a little bit of fun at Peter here. And he says, hey, he didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, it's like, it's like the spiritual way of, it's like bless his heart. You know, like when you want to call somebody a loser, but you don't want to say that, you know. Like, you don't want to go, you're a moron. You just go, bless your heart. How do I know that? Because I've heard it numerous, numerous times. <laughs> just ask her. She says it. But what, let me defend Peter for just a minute. What Peter's doing is sort of noble. It's, it's, like, an, it's like an offer of hospitality. He, he's sort of saying, please don't go. There's a part of him that's playing, saying, please stay a little bit longer. But, but it is an absurd request. It's an absurd suggestion, and here's why. Greek, Greek writers would have used the, the image of a tent, not just as a tent, but it would have been a metaphor for the body. Because you see, we, we, you don't live in a tent, says the guy who's never been camping. You don't live in a tent. I'll get, let you get past that one for a minute. For the most part, you don't live in a tent. A tent is a temporary dwelling place. This is a temporary dwelling place. Don't get me wrong. I'm working as hard as I can to take care of it. Doing a better job now than I used to. But this is temporary. This is temporary. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, We know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens. Moses and Elijah didn't need tents or shelters any more than they needed flesh, bones, and earthly bodies again. 
They had an eternal king. They had they had eternal uh, kingdom of God bodies. Philippians chapter three verse twenty one says. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body. Into the likeness of His glorious body. Y'all, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to do a pull-up. That's my only goal. Because it's not happening on this side of life. Unless somebody comes behind me and... 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We will be like Him. Our goal, our striving on this side of life, I say it every time somebody enters the waters. I don't care if you've been a pastor. I don't care if you're brand new in your relationship with Christ. My, ask, my question to you is, is it your commitment to to grow in Christ's likeness as long as you are a part of this faith family. We are to become, be becoming more and more and more like Christ. But when we see the other side of life, we will be just like Him. Man. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 51. We will not all fall asleep. Not all of us are going to die. There's going to, be a, there's going to be a season when He comes back. There's going to be a day where He comes back. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the morning breaks eternal bright and fair. And the saints of earth are gathered over on the other shore. When that roll is called up yonder, will you be there? The trumpet's going to blast and He's going to come again. So there will be a group, there will be a a, 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 a congregation of people who don't experience death in the physical sense. It says we will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. We are going to be incorruptible and we are going to be immortal. What does that mean? That means sin can stick it. And that means that we will live forever with Him. And death can stick it too. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. Because the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses and Elijah don't need a tent. They don't need a shelter. They don't need earthly bodies again because they are literally, not figuratively, not demonstratively, they are literally walking and living living in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, of their God the Father. Keep reading. Verse 34, while Peter was saying this, while he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. If you want to know where that's coming from, look at Exodus chapter 13. A cloud appeared, appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. 
And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Moses and Elijah are no longer there. They had completed their assignment, their reason for being with him, whatever that was. And it says they kept silent and at the time told no one what they had seen. This is what I wrote down. I just asked myself, what, what's the purpose of this event? And in the moment, I believe there's several reasons. But two or three came to mind as I studied this last couple of weeks. Number one, I believe it was an affirmation of Peter's confession of faith. Peter had just answered saying, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Peter, who would become the de facto leader of the disciples, 11 of which one would be added to make 12 again, they would begin to change the world. The gospel would begin to be uh, propagated and proclaimed throughout the world. And it starts with these 12. I think part of this was an affirmation of, of Peter's confession of faith. Number two, I believe firmly that it's the Father encouraging the Son, as well as those who are committed to Him. God, is, God spoke at the baptism, baptism, this baptism, baptism, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He's going to speak again. Uh, in uh, John chapter 12, uh, he's going to speak again as, as we enter the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, and, he's gonna, and he speaks here. And he speaks as an affirmation of his son and what his son is saying to the disciples. What his son is saying to us. And number three, I believe it's, it's a demonstration of the kingdom of God. Not only has Jesus turned his heart and his mind towards Jerusalem and towards Calvary and toward the cross. He knows the suffering that he's going to have to experience, but he also has this heart and he has this mindset and he has this perspective towards eternity and for his father's kingdom and all those promises to be fulfilled. Those are three things that came to mind, but as I began to enter towards getting closer and closer today, I would add one more. Romans 12, chapter, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Just jot those down. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Go back to them later. Paul tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Paul tells us this is our true worship. And then Paul tells us to not be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We, we may not be transfigured, but God's word reminds us that we are to be ongoingly transformed. We are to be becoming more and more and more like Christ on a daily basis. Yes, I hope that, that folks from years ago, if they met me today, they'd, they'd say and, and, and experience more of Christ in me than they knew back then. But I hope if you see me tomorrow, that your experience with me will be that I'm more like Christ than I was today on a daily basis, becoming more and more like Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are only transformed when we are looking at Him. We are only transformed when we are allowing His Spirit to do the work in us. And here's, here's where this last little phrase comes in. We're, be, we're to be transformed. We're to be made more like Him. How does that happen? Well, God just said it. This is my Son. This is the Chosen One. And then He says three simple words. Listen to Him. This has been an incredible experience. 
This this has had to have been a life-changing experience for Peter, James, and John. Again, we can't fully understand it because they couldn't fully describe it. But what has happened here is not the takeaway. It's not the only takeaway. It's not even the most important takeaway. They have seen this moment. They've met Moses and Elijah, guys who were alive 1,500 years ago, a guy that was alive 900 years ago. They've met, they've had this incredible experience. But the problem with the experience is, is it fades. The experience was a moment in time. It might have been several moments in time. But even it was an incredible experience. It was an eternal experience. It was a supernatural experience. But all of a sudden it says they were gone. And Jesus retook his form. And the experience was gone. But what will happen is Peter, in one of his letters, will reference this moment in time again. He will reference the baptism and he will reference this moment. But he won't reference the moments. He will, rep- he will, he will reference what God says when he talks in his letter in, in 2 Peter chapter, I think 2 Peter chapter 2, it might be 1 Peter chapter 2, sorry. Uh, he says, God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then he talks about the directive that God gave him at this moment to listen to him. How are we transfigured? How are we transformed? How do we become more like Christ? We become more like Christ by learning and looking and diving and becoming and in his word. It is our commitment here at First Baptist in the Atlantic. And I've got people in place to check me on a regular basis. It is my commitment that this will always be at the forefront of who we are and what we do. Because we're going to listen to Him. We're going to be as creative as we possibly can be. That's why we do things like Vacation Bible School. That's why we do things like Trivia Night. That's why we do lots of different things. We will be creative and we will come as, with as many methodologies as we, as we possibly can. But we will always, always, always listen to Him. We will do this wonderful choir thing and we will have, we will probably, I, I, I hope a thousand people come and get in this room. Wow, that would break fire code. I hope that a lot of people come in, in this room. I hope that we don't have enough chairs. I hope that we have a wonderful experience. But what will happen is that will happen on Sunday and Monday morning will come. I hope that we have an incredible VBS experience. Jen, I hope 3,000 kids are here. Julie and I will be out of town. But I hope that there are 3,000 kids here. But I promise you, June the 6th through the 9th, that will be an incredible experience. God will rain down from above, and it will be supernatural, and it will be wonderful, and hopefully kids and their parents will get saved. But I'm telling you right now, June 10th will probably come. And the experience will fade, but the Word of God will last forever. Now, saying experiences are bad. Experiences are wonderful. But only two things will last forever the Word of God and the souls of men. So, my question is are you in the Word and how's your soul? There's nothing I'd rather talk to you about than your relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we close in just a minute, I'm going to close in a word of prayer, but you're not going to go anywhere. Because we're going to bring lunch out to you. We're going to spend some time talking about an incredible experience that highlights the Word of God. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your Word. Transform us more into the likeness of your Son. Because we ask it in His name and for His sake. 
Amen. Take a brief bathroom break if you need to, uh, but we're going to start bringing out lunch and we're going to get started just as quickly as possible. Go ahead and grab your kids. They're also getting lunch. Uh, So if you've got any questions, talk to Jen, talk to Sarah. Don't ask me. I don't know anything.